Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, thanks, guys. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, kiddos... We have uh, Elevate first and second grade out this door with the Neville crew, and we have third, fourth, and fifth uh, have EGC out this side, and I will tell you again this morning, we're going to be covering some sensitive topics, uh, uh, and if you are, uh, if, if you have a child that you don't believe is at the age to cover some sensitive topic, one in particular I'm going to try to be delicate with, but we are going to talk about some ancient Greek practices, and none of those were very good. Um, there were some that were good, but not this one. Um, <clears throat> so if, uh, if you're ready to have those conversations, they can hang out in here. If, if not, if you feel like they're on the border, uh, you can send them uh, to um, EGC. And uh, <laughs> this is, has nothing to do with anything, but a priest friend who has a school at their, at their parish uh, some parents called him and asked if they had CRT books in their library. And he said, um, first, do your kids have a phone? And he was like, yeah. He goes, because they're not checking out books from our library. So uh, you want to you wanna guide, guard and protect all this stuff, you may want to check their phone before you check our library. <laughs> and I was like, boy, that's genius. Uh, so um, if your kids don't have a phone yet, they're welcome to hang in here. Uh, but you may want to send them. All right. <clears throat> Uh, I also want to say um, that uh, we're continuing on our sermon series in Deuteronomy. My wife graciously, like Im- incredibly graciously, listens to my sermons on Sunday morning. And um, this morning, at about an hour and 20 minutes, she said, honey, this needs to be two sermons. Um, and I actually listened this time. So uh, we're going to cut this short, probably. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be aware of time, uh, but we will, we will cut it short um, and cover the rest of it next week. We'll just do that. Um, cool? All right. Uh, one of the dumbest movies I have ever seen in my life has a line in it that I still think is really, really, really funny, and it just fits, and I, and I quote it uh, often. It's uh, Dinner for Schmucks. Have, has anybody wasted two hours of their life watching that? Okay, it's Steve Carell, which you have hope, hopes for, um, and he, okay, like he makes, he, he recreates famous scenes with dead mice, I think, right? Is it dead mice? I didn't even bother to look up like exactly what he did. But he's kind of, he's talking about himself and he always tries to give these in, inspirational quotes. And I think this was like one of his quotes that where he was trying to be humble about his vision for the world where he quotes the great John Lennon and says, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm, I'm not. Okay, all right, uh, and, uh, and then I think the guy's like, the only one, and he goes, the only one what? <laughs> He's like, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. He's like, oh, thanks for showing me up. You know, like, uh, so um, it's amazing. You remove a couple of words, and it changes the entire point of the song. Um, when we take things and words and thoughts and beliefs out of context, it tends to change everything, uh, and we can, we can really make things say what we want. Uh, there's this meme going around Facebook about how uh, don't, um, forget it. Uh, I, see, now I'm going to uh, take liberty with the half of sermon, and we're going to end up going an hour and a half anyway. All right. This morning, we're going to continue on in, the, in uh, the statutes that God gives his people in Israel, chapters 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy. Uh, and, um, uh, and we're going to remember, especially for today's topic, the nature of these laws. This is critical. God is not the cosmic killjoy. God is not up there going, see all these ways to have fun? I am going to forbid you from doing them. And if you're going to love me, you're going to do everything that's not fun. This is not how God designed the world. The laws and statutes that he gives, he gives ultimately for our good. He is the one that designed us. He designed us how to be and how to live in the universe uh, that he designed. And so it's critical to understand that the laws that he gives, the statutes, not only are they for our good, 
but they are also a representation of who He is. It is an invitation to know Him, the God who created all things. Uh, and so that's important to know. It's also important to know, really every week, but especially for this week, that we have a very real enemy. And we have a very real enemy that is not as overt as we would like him to be. He does not come to us and say, I'm your enemy, <laughs> and I want to destroy you. Right? He gets us to value even good things too much. He helps disorder our desires. He gets us to believe lies about God. This is the way that he has operated. And in fact, one of the, li- the, the very first lie that he started with, are these really for your good? Are you sure that he's out for your good? Can you really trust this God? I'm not sure you can. So it's important to recognize both, both of these things. Um, Our enemy wants us to rely at least on our own good ideas, the best things that we can come up with, rather than the one who created us and made us and the world that we operate in. Um, Something else when we see in Deuteronomy, we don't see the ultimate picture of the law of what it will one day be. We have the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, and then we have the person and work of Jesus that just really shows the ultimate point of them. Um, But sometimes especially in these early on, these, these laws early on, God enters into their culture and explains things in a way that they can understand in their culture, all right? When you're in kindergarten, you're not taking college comp and algebra. When you're in kindergarten, you're learning the alphabet and you're learning how to count. Or somewhere near kindergarten, you learn the alphabet and learn how to count. First grade, pre-K, somewhere. You have to learn that first. And God, when he enters this, he's not going to explain everything that we would want him to, to, uh, um, to show, but he does build it in and then, and then grow their knowledge there. So today, uh, we, we, the, the whole picture, this week and next week, we're going to look at sex and marriage and women and men as revealed in the law of God in Deuteronomy. Um, now, <clears throat> before we get going, I want to, so today I think we're going we're gonna to at least get through sex and marriage. Um, I want to pray before we look at these for a, a few reasons. Um, uh, first, our minds might be tempted to jump in directions that are unhelpful. Um, fear, anger, bitterness, uh, self-justification, hurt, uh, immaturity, We're going to look at these laws in the context in which they were given, and we will see, we're we're going to look at how they are moved forward and developed over time and how Jesus fulfills them, but there's there's still something here, and some of these laws, when we hear them, we can immediately jump to a reaction. And so I want to pray for our minds and hearts in that. But also, there might be words that that are trigger words, um, that we're going to have to fight hard to gain understanding, and not just cut, cut to a cultural assumption or presumption, uh, good or bad. Some of us might need to be humbled in our understandings. Some of us might need to understand that these are Western context words and these are not biblical context words, like we understand them in different ways than we should. Uh, Some of us are going to need to be comforted uh, because uh, we need to be encouraged in our understanding. And so let's make room for that. And finally, um, as as the punchline to the whole sermon, I want to give this right off the bat so that this can be in mind. This is for this week. Uh, and for next week, the ultimate goal of God for his people is that we would submit and trust him for our good. That we would trust him. That we would follow in obedience. When we don't, that we would receive and ask for forgiveness and be restored and reconciled to him. That we would also then submit to one another and be for each other's good. That the church would not be the last place you come when you fail, but the first place you come. That the church would actually be the people of God cheering you on into maturity and trust and growth and not the people that you have to lie to and put your resume uh, on to avoid feeling shame. Okay? Um, That is the goal that God has for us as individuals and for us as a people. And these are gonna require hard things. They require, require, require grace, and forgiveness, 
They require giving forgiveness, but also, and perhaps what's even harder, receiving forgiveness. Um, it's going to require humility and vulnerability of heart, uh, where defensiveness and self-justification are met with humility and confession. And God's law is going to give us uh, and require in our minds and hearts justice, but not vengeance. To quote, quote the great Rachel Dawes in Batman Begins, justice is about harmony. Vengeance is just about making yourself feel better. So, let me pray real quick before we get into this. God, give us soft hearts, give us open minds, help us to hear what we need to hear about your goodness. Help us to receive and give grace and mercy. And because of Jesus and our, that we are loved infinitely by him, far more than we could ever imagine, help us to take that and then begin to be for one another. Which sometimes requires a hug, sometimes requires a kick in the pants but always requires hope and um, humility and courage. So I pray that you would meet us here and move us that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so what I want to do right off the bat is I want to start with a quick, I'm just going to read down through some of these laws and stipulations that are given in uh, Deuteronomy. Most of them will come from Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, where he covers most of the rules uh, regarding, most of them specifically will be about marriage, and then we'll, we'll, we'll branch out from there. Um, <clears throat> uh, so the most of it will be in, in Deuteronomy chapter 22. I do want to say two things. One, when they're moving in to the land, at the end of Deuteronomy 16, God gives a warning that they do not set up an Asherah pole. Uh, just so you know, that is a god, that is a goddess or a culmination of Canaanite goddesses, uh, she was the mother goddess. She was the goddess of fertility, a huge issue that's going to be reoccurring throughout uh, the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, and goddesses of fertility, most of the worship rituals involving the goddess of futility, uh, of futility, <laughs> fertility, you know, um, uh, involve, uh, involve sex. Uh, and so God is going to be very clear. Do not set up a, an altar uh, to this goddess in my presence. And Israel's going to have trouble with that over and over and over again. So if you think sex is a problem of modern day, we will dispose of that pretty quickly. Uh, and then um, also right at the end of that paragraph, at the beginning of chapter 17, Moses is going to go over several times that there needs to be a multitude of witnesses for these laws and rules to be enacted. This is protection. This is protection from just one person with power or influence accusing another person. There has to be multiple witnesses. Uh, and so when it comes to, like, the woman caught in adultery, uh, Jesus kind of, they had a multitude of witnesses to catch a woman in adultery. All right? So Jesus calls that out pretty quickly. This is a setup. I'll let you, one plus one equals two there. Uh, and, and also there was no dude because it takes two for adultery. Um, so, We'll get there. Uh, I'm going to try to be calm as we go through this. Uh, and I'll ask for prayer real quick. I got to a, a, a point earlier in the week where I could not get through these thoughts without thinking this is going to be incomplete for somebody and they're going to be upset. This is going to offend somebody. This may hurt or wound somebody and I'm going to make everybody mad. All right? Um, I feel a little bit more sense of courage this morning, uh, but... Um, recognize I'm not standing up here doing this, okay? Uh, I want for us to hear these things, and I want for these to be helpful. So let's start, start with the rest of these uh, rules and statutes. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 13, uh, I'll just give you an outline. You can follow along in your Bible if you want. Um, it, it would be good to read these. Some of them I'll read. Some of them I'll just I'll, I'll tell you about. Verse 13, if a man takes his wife and they consummate, and they have sex, and then he decides he doesn't like her, and then tries to accuse her of not being a virgin. Um, this would shame her and her family. And so there's a law in place that her father can produce some kind of record that he has that she is, in fact, a virgin. I don't know the record-keeping process of that day and how those were to be uh, given, but he can produce a record that she was a virgin, 
And if she produces, if he produces the record, that protects the man from accusing her and from putting her out. Um, and then the elders of the city would take the man outside the city and whip him and fine him 100 shekels, which is roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of $25,000. And then he has to stay married to her and cannot divorce her. Now, there's an implication in this that she may not be required to fulfill her part of the marital obligations, but he is. Marriage was a financial obligation for a man in that day. So he's required to fulfill those. If it's found out that, that it's true and she was not a virgin, and again, I'm, I'm not sure how you get the record keeping here, uh, but it was for protection, then she was to be stoned with rocks, not plants. And this was due to, this is a pretty big deal of fraud. Okay? Um, and so this would have been fraud for the woman to, to do that. Uh, I'll get through all these and then we'll try to unpack them um, a little bit more. Uh, verse 23 of Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. And so you shall purge evil from Israel. So adultery is punishable by death of the man and the woman, again, with the requirement of multiple witnesses. Uh, adultery in that day was not just two people and in the immediate families, it was actually two whole households and it was betrayal, it was treasonous. And so for a man and a woman to be found in adultery, again, with multiple witnesses, uh, it is punishable by death. Um, <clears throat> 23 through 24, if, a, if there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city, so in, a, in the city would be where there are people around and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them both with stones. And the young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so, so, so you shall purge evil from your midst. Here again, the appearance of a consensual affair, um, adultery, then they are both, they both pay the penalty. However, verse 25, if they are in the open country and a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this uh, case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one there to rescue her. So when a man uses his strength, his position, his whatever else, his authority to coerce a woman uh, into sex, which is, is, which is rape, uh, he dies. She is set free. Verse 28, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give, uh, shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her and he may not divorce her all her days. Um, the man, again, is required to take care of her uh, and provide for her financially and cannot divorce her, cannot give her a certificate of divorce. Again, it's unclear of if the woman uh, would have been free to, of her marital obligations uh, in that case. Uh, and then over in chapter 24, there's an interesting command over certificates of divorce, um, and this is something that Jesus brings up. If a man gives a woman a certificate of divorce, and then she goes and gets remarried, and then the second husband either dies or also gives her a certificate of divorce, the first husband cannot go and take her again as his wife. This is an abomination. And essentially, and this, there's, there's some confusion there because there's other ancient Near Eastern laws on divorce and marriage. And most other ancient Near Eastern laws on divorce, it is only about, all ancient Near Eastern practices, it was only the man who could divorce. In, in the Israel tradition here, in the Mosaic law, women are also given rights and protection. And that's pretty huge. They are both set free. So the man does not have rights over his wife anymore. This is not, this, there's a whole lot here of why this is an abomination. Uh, it might be to do with the dowry, that he can't simply just go back and claim the dowry uh, if the other husband dies. Uh, it's, it is complicated, but essentially what it does is if a woman is given a certificate of divorce, it frees her and him, depending on the unfaithfulness, it frees them from 
continuing to be obligated to that marriage and all of the, all of the rules and functions therein. Okay? These are, uh, these are the laws of, of Deuteronomy. Um, some of these we're going to jump into next week because a lot of these have to do with the rights of women and how this is fully developed uh, in Scripture. Um, and uh, so we're going to start with uh, having all these laws and rules. We're going to start with um, first sex. We'll start there. We're going to be tempted in our day to want a chapter and verse for the Bible clearly says no sex outside of marriage. Okay? And, I, and I'm going to tell you, I think the Bible certainly implies that. But you're not going to find a chapter and verse that says explicitly what we want it to say. Like, if you're a parent, what you exactly want it to say. Uh, and if you're a teenager, you're like, ah, um, Not a teenager in general. I, see, this is where I get in trouble. I'm going to stick with the script here. Um, <clears throat> we're not going to find something in Scripture that says this, this directly. What, we're, our, what we are going to find in Scripture is that sex is beautiful, that it is powerful, and that it can be dangerous. Israel, again, is going to run into multiple problems with the worship of Asherah or all of the other sex goddesses and fertility goddesses of the day. What Genesis 2 is going to tell us in the, in the creation order with Adam and Eve is that they were naked and felt no shame and that they were united in covenant together and that this covenant is why a man would leave his father and mother, would hold fast to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. The two becoming one flesh, this is sex, and for, in Hebrew, this, the literal translation is the mingling of souls to be united to one another. This is a bond that is created between a man and a woman that is not simply about pleasure, nor simply about baby making. This is about a deep, intimate, trust, vulnerable bond. Um, Deuteronomy shows some of the consequences and damages that just how powerful sex can be, Deuteronomy is going to give some of the consequences. It's going to fo focus more on the dangers. Here are the consequences when sex gets out of hand, when it's outside of a, commit, uh, of a commitment, and what that does to a reputation, what that does to a family, what that does to a woman, what that does to a marriage or a community. And so what we see in all of these things, sex is created by God, it is good, and it's also given parameters and protection because it is powerful. Now, I know that there's a way to look at this and, and to say, ah, you're so old-fashioned. You're such an old man. We're enlightened now. Sex is just good. Uh, and and, and we, we should be able to have it without shame. Now, um, to that I would ask if you know anything about Greco-Roman practices regarding sex and marriage. If you think that we are enlightened and you think that our day from either side, either conservative or progressive, that our day is either raucous and raunchy or uh, just heaped up in tradition and now we get it, um, I would encourage you to do, I would slowly encourage you to do some research on Greco-Roman practices of sex and sexuality. Um, Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthian church about temple prostitution, not Christian temples, okay? These are pagan uh, temples, probably Diana, which is a fertility goddess, uh, and temple prostitution there. What Paul gives, this is just kind of everyday common practice and what guys did. And what Paul would say is, do you not realize if you go to a temple prostitute, you are becoming one with them. This is not just two bodies slapping together. This is, you are becoming one. You are uniting with them. Um, Greg Johnson, who's a pastor in St. Louis, he preached here last summer. Uh, summer 2021. Uh, he is a friend. 
He is same-sex attracted. He has, he has done a whole lot to try to not be that, and, and that's what he is. Uh, he has committed himself radically to Jesus and to the church and to celibacy. And I have a ton of respect for Greg because he has given up more than me. And I have a ton of respect for him. And I appreciate his voice and the sacrifices he's made and the voice that he brings to, this, to the table in this argument. And he did a lot of research uh, for his book, Still Time to Care, which I would commend to you. There's going to be a few books that I'll commend here. Still Time to Care. Uh, and I will say, I will commend that highly to you, although if this is an area that you have struggled with, I will tell you to be cautious and read slowly because it can be hard. Uh, but he brought a whole lot of light to bear on ancient practices of the Greek world, especially when it comes to sex. This is the part where we're going to get sensitive. Um, these practices would be quite disturbing in our day. In Greek tradition, this is at the time of Jesus, we don't know as much before, but at the time of Jesus, Greek tradition, men usually didn't get married until about 30 or 35 years old. Uh, <clears throat> when they did get married, they would get married to girls, that, w women who were quite a bit younger, probably teenagers. Women were for having babies. In the meantime, men would often practice or prepare for marriage with young teenage boys. And this was a fairly common practice that would then be repeated. This is the Greco-Roman Greco world. Uh, this was not outlandish. This was considered commonplace. Followers of Jesus in the New Testament um, in particular from Persian, Greek, and Roman backgrounds, when they began to meet Jesus, when they began to take in his teaching, they grew, they had a much higher view of women, of sex, and of marriage. And these practices ceased among Christians. They radically changed. Sometimes we have a view that says all of ancient history was like the 1950s and Christians have just been traditionalists the whole time. No. No. This went radically against very commonly accepted culture. This, in marriage circles, this would go against Jude, Jude, uh, Jewish teaching in that day. You have Hillel and Shammai, which were two uh, rabbis that would teach, and one of them would say, you can divorce a woman. They talked about when you could divorce, and it was all about men, when men could divorce a woman, and one of them, and I don't remember which one, said, you can divorce a woman if, if the chicken is dry. That's an excuse. And Christians turned away from that and went toward radical commitments of marriage that really protected women and called men to account. We'll get into that more next week. When I was growing up, <clears throat> I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and we didn't talk much about sex, culture, church. We, like, we, didn't, we just didn't talk about, about it very much, except we had lots and lots of warnings about it. Now, I wasn't raised in the purity culture. I know a little bit about purity culture uh, and the damage that that has done. Purity culture would say it's kind of an A plus B equals C uh, mentality. Don't have sex before marriage, and then in marriage, sex is going to be wonderful. Whether you've talked about it or not, whether it's good or not, whether, like, just if you do this, then this is going to happen. It's going to be great. Um, in the 80s and 90s, most of what we got in regards to sex were warnings. <laughs> uh, and, and, and most of them had consequences uh, when it came to sex of, like, being the point of no return. You do this, and you're out. which, and we didn't talk about it much, which led us to get most of our information, at least me, I'm speaking from my own experience, most of our information from our fellow junior high kids, which doesn't go well. So in that day, we didn't talk about the design of sex or the beauty of sex in marriage. We were kind of left to answer those questions uh, in junior high. And then, so... If you got married, 
Thursday and Friday, if you got married on a Saturday, Thursday and Friday, sex is bad, sex is bad. Saturday, sex is wonderful. You should enjoy it. It should be great from the get-go. Um, now, stereotypical male, like all of the qualifications there. I'm stereotypical male. That was not hard for me to get past, all right? It's like, cool. But I know a whole lot of people that were damaged greatly by this, that still carry a lot of wounds, that were expected to just show up and all of a sudden it was great and it wasn't great. And there were lots of complications. Um, many in my generation, and I think this is only getting more and more because of the ease of access, we learned about sex in hidden ways and not in healthy and redemptive ways. The book of Proverbs in Scripture, this is basically a manual for junior high boys, and it talks a lot about sex. And Solomon talks a lot about it in grown-up, responsible ways. There's no coarse language. There's no, there's no like, joking here and there or, or elbows. But he is basically teaching and training junior high boys about sex uh, and, and life and wisdom. And it was scandalous even in ancient Israel. But it's a great lesson plan. In our day... We just, we kind of had some overreactions to the church, and we, all we did was warn about it. In the current day, uh, and I'm a parent at this point, um, my views are skewed. My views are my own, my experiences. Um, in our day with, with uh, the, the teenagers that we have contact with, it seems as though that there's a certain age at where sex just becomes common, like it's just another appetite. Uh, Tim Keller has a, a great illustration of this, right? When, when you're hungry, when you're feeling hungry, you eat. When you're feeling sexy, you sex. And he would say, if, if we walked into a place and we saw all these men in a club on a Friday night with music pounding and somebody came out on stage and was holding a plate like this and slowly pulled back a sheet to reveal a plate full of chicken wings. And every chicken wing you saw, the men started going nuts and started throwing dollar bills at the chicken wings. And, and then you go to a college campus and all of these guys are in their college campus and they have, over here, they have a giant poster in extra high detail of a, of a bacon cheeseburger with ketchup dripping off of it just so. And over here they have a hot dog with no ketchup if you're from Chicago, but the, the onions and the mustard just kind of dangling on it just so. And, and this is what you saw everywhere. You would walk into this culture and go, they have an unhealthy appetite for food. There's something weird going on here. In our day, it seems as though it's just another appetite. Um, kids are going to do it, so, so whatever. Um, and again, I'm not trying to be like fuddy-duddy here. We are on our fourth trip through junior high. Uh, we've walked through two sets of friends through high school, and, and sex just seems to be one of the options out there. It's not sacred. It seems to be very casual. And this is our culture that we're in. We are not in a Christian culture, and, and, and that's okay. It is okay. It means we're going to have to do the work. If you're a follower of Jesus and a parent, you have to have conversations. We have to do the work. And that's okay. And I, I did talk to my wife about this. Alice and I are more than willing to talk. Uh, if you have questions, how do you do this? I will tell you this. There is no the talk. Okay? There are ongoing conversations. Open it up. Ask me anything, my failings, my successes. But if, if you leave a child to fight this alone, they will lose. They will lose. It's so accessible in our day. Um, and so what is the Christian voice here? See, I'm going long and we're not even, all right, I'm going to work on it. All right, um, let me give you two parameters that I think bare minimum would, help, would be helpful for us regarding sex that Scripture will give us at least, okay? Two parameters. Sex is not everything. And sex is not nothing. Sex is not everything, and sex is not nothing. It's not everything. Sex is not a God to be worshipped. It's not essential for living. You can live and have a full life and not have sex. That's not what we're marketed with. That's not what we're told. But it is true. God has gifted me um, in the last several years uh, God has gifted me with several friends 
who are committed to celibacy. They see their life as they're going to be single and they have a commitment to celibacy. And they have a deep, deep value, a convicting value for radical friendship. And they have challenged me and opened my eyes to see love in a way that I had missed it. Love in healthy and whole platonic friendship that I need desperately, that I have looked down on. They are part of thriving communities. They're involved in families, and their lives are not lacking. Do they have longings? Absolutely. Do they struggle with loneliness? Absolutely. And you know what? I'm married, and, and so do I. This is not to equivocate. Marriage does not fix loneliness, and marriage does not fix longings. It's not the cure for that. So I have friends that have very full lives without having sex. And at the same time, sex is not, in, for, the, for the Christian world, sex is not the point of no return. I think there are a number of things that I think followers of Jesus would do well to dismiss. One is fear tactics, like the overwhelming amount of fear tactics. Um, two is always seeing through things through the lens of who's in and who's out. I think we would do well to trust Jesus to return to judge the living and the dead and relieve ourselves from that responsibility and say who's in and who's out. We need to have good, healthy discussions about sex. We need to be able to talk about temptations and patterns of addiction. We need to experience forgiveness and restoration and not have to keep everything hidden as if bringing, because bringing these things into the light is what helps us fight well. Sex is not everything. And on the other side, sex is not nothing. I've heard the phrase over and over again, it's just sex. And you need to know, it is never just sex. Ever. It is never just sex. A lot of people have very, very, very deep wounds from just sex. Lies and deceit, we see it everywhere for, for just sex and trying to get away with just sex. Human beings are sold and trafficked. They are consistently objectified and dehumanized on screens. Porn actresses, by and large, are trafficked women for just sex. People have been murdered for just sex. People leave their families for just sex. People have and continue day after day after day to abandon their faith for just sex. Please don't ever tell me that it's just sex. It is not. It is not. That is foolishly naive. As the law continues to develop over time, God acknowledges how powerful, God is, is showing us how powerful sex is, that it needs parameters. He's given it a place to grow and flourish and also reveal our needs and still function as an act of worship while simultaneously continuing to be a lousy God. In its proper place, sex can help bring healing and restoration. It can deepen trust and intimacy. It can bind two people together in sacred ways and yet it will never satisfy as a God unto itself. And we know this. We know it when we're honest. But a lot of us don't like to necessarily be honest. But we do know that. What we see on display here in Deuteronomy is the warning and the designated protection within a covenant of marriage when it comes to sex. Sex in a committed relationship is designed to re-enter this creation narrative, the idea of being naked and without shame. It is hollowed ground. Even in marriage, it needs work and effort and vulnerability and security and trust to become, to be what it was designed to be. We're not even going to get to marriage. Um, all right. Let's land the plane here. So we'll have three things next week. 
This may last all through November. Uh, um, let's, we'll land the plane here. Uh, there, there's a lot involved with marriage. There's a lot involved that this reveals about women and men and all that's involved here. There's a lot of questions here. The law that Moses gives is actually pretty incredible, the way God does this. It interrupts radical individualism of our day and says there is a whole community and a whole people that you are called to be part of and honoring one another and, and being for the good of the whole. And yet at the same time, and this is what's ra- that's what's radical in our day, what's radical in this day is the law also conveys that you as an individual matter. You have dignity and, ra- and value and worth. Whether you are a slave, whether you are male or female, regardless of your position in these, in these ways, you matter. That's what's radical in this day. It wasn't just all the people uh, as a whole, and, and you don't play that important of a role. Um, you matter, your dignity matters, your life matters. Uh, this is a complicated age. Have we said that enough? This is a complicated age. Um, this is not good guys versus bad guys, unless you're talking about my heart, and then my heart is good guys versus bad guys. We are Jekylls and Hydes. All of us. Um, we are living in both an overreaction. We're, well, we're living in an overreaction to everything. We're overreacting to Christianity, and we're overreacting to culture. We're just overreacting to everything. Um, I want to suggest two types of voices to steer clear of in our day. The proud and the bitter. Be careful when we take in the voice of the proud and or the voice of the bitter. And I want to say, both of these voices come from image bearers of God who have been hurt, who are scared, who are insecure, who are fearful who want for safety. They both of these voices have deep wounds and they both desperately need the grace of Jesus, as do we all. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying demonize the voice of the proud and demonize the voice of the bitter. I'm saying be careful. Your soul and my soul do not need these voices driving the stagecoach. They will fuel our hearts with either pride and or bitterness, with resentment and fear and anxiety. They will not fuel hope and trust and faith. What the law, maybe especially more in this area than any other, reveals is that we need a rescuer. We are lousy saviors. We are lousy messiahs. We desperately need someone to rescue us from ourselves. We need hope as individuals and as a people. We need a church where we can come and be honest with our struggles, with our confessions, with our hurts, and that those can can be received and moved toward healing, where even our bitterness and our pride can be heard and listened to and then diffused and allowed to mellow until we can hear what we really need to be accepted and loved, even here. And this is going to take a lot of maturity as, as a church, both local expression refuge and capital C church, because we're going to have to be able to take hits. We're going to have to be able to not always respond. We're going to have to be able to not live in fear of this group taking over or this group taking over, of all the hashtags. We're going to have to be able to receive forgiveness enough that we can love somebody, even somebody that has hurt us. We're going to get to marriage I guess next week, where we'll talk about what is, like, we have to forgive people that hurt us. That's just part of the deal. But there are levels of hurt where this covenant can be dissolved. So n- know that. Couch that there. And hang on till, it, till next week. Um, we're going to have to grant forgiveness. Uh, a lot of us are actually going to have to receive forgiveness. And that's hard. 
Because, man, shame is a powerful weapon. And I can tell you all day long, don't let shame win the day. And it wins the day so often in me, you wouldn't even believe it. We have to be able to receive forgiveness. We have to walk in all these areas, sex, marriage, gender, all of the hot topics of the day, and actually still be able to receive the love of Jesus and be for one another. Our ultimate good in Christ, and that's hard. <clears throat> I asked a friend this week how he would preach these laws, and his response was, I wouldn't. Um, he said, I would preach Philippians 2, and I would stay away from that. And... Uh, as I so often do, I ran right through that stop sign. Uh, you'll be happy to know that the Mosaic Law does not address traffic issues whatsoever. So I feel totally fine in that. <clears throat> um, ain't no speed limits in the Mosaic Law. Uh, uh, but uh, this is a great passage to finish with. So I'm going to read this. I'll add some commentary if necessary, but I, this for what it looks like to be the church and be for one another. This is about as good as it gets. Um, and then uh, we'll pray through Psalm 1 to end. This is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, refuge. If there's any encouragement for you in Christ, if there's any comfort for you in love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Be careful of what you do for self-fulfillment. Be careful of the things that you take on that are just about your happiness or just about your fulfillment. Watch out for selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, Look at these other people sitting around you. They have value and worth and dignity, regardless of age, gender, economic status, race. They have value and worth, and consider them for that. They are more significant than you. And so look not only to your own interests. I'm not telling you to ignore your junk. But as you deal with your junk, look also to other people with humility and their junk. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is not something you have to attain. This is not something that you have to accomplish. This is something you simply have to remember. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. And what did he do? I am so glad you asked. Though God of the universe, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that one day, at the feet of Jesus, you will bring your shame, you will bring your failure, you will bring your successes, you will bring the days that you nailed it and the days that you blew it, you will bring your sin, you will bring your forgiveness, you will bring everything that you need to the foot of Jesus, and your knee will bow, along with every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and we will confess that Jesus Christ the great rescuer, the great healer, the one who can forgive us and redeem us and restore us is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, may we consider your law not as a, just a list of rules to accomplish, but as a way that you designed us and the world to be. Blessed 
is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but that their delight and their joy is in the law of the Lord. And on that, they meditate, they fix their desires, they find joy and hope day and night. That person is like a, like a tree planted by streams of water who grows and is nourished and is fed. It doesn't mean that that person doesn't go through tough seasons. Every tree goes through tough seasons. But they are fed and nourished. And their fruit grows and whatever they do prospers because it's, it's in the light of who you've called us to be. Not so the wicked, not so when we ignore you or the ones who just ignore you or do their own way, whether by irreligious means or by religious means. They are like chaff that the wind will blow away. All of the strongest voices in our world right now, again, religious or irreligious, will blow away like chaff in the next, next generation. We'll be on to something else that you have to have. Therefore, the wicked will not get to stand in the grace of your judgment when you pronounce forgiven. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord, you know the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. Soften our hearts, may we trust you. I pray against the voice of shame and condemnation I pray for hope and healing, the ability to forgive in really, really hard circumstances, and the ability to be forgiven in really, really hard circumstances. Jesus, you have made known, if nothing else, our hope is not in our merit, but yours. Meet us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.